Today on Something You Should Know, what's the best music to listen to when you're trying to concentrate? I'll have the surprising answer. Then, how gullible and suggestible are you to things like placebos and hypnosis? So if someone has, let's say, a fear of the dentist chair, this is where this has been used a fair bit, you can change that. You get someone into that state and you can change their expectation when they see a dentist chair. You can have them visualize dentist chair. Now, I should say throughout this whole process, you're not asleep. Also, are those generic look-alike products at the drugstore, like shampoos and lotions, are they really the same as the name brands? And why your doctor may be over-treating you. If you come to the doctor and you're having a cold, you expect a treatment. And the doctor is also trained to treat patients. And what we find is that in 30% of cases, unnecessary treatment are prescribed. All this today on Something You Should Know. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hello, welcome to Something You Should Know. You probably like music. I like music. Everybody likes music. We don't all like the same music, but pretty much everyone likes music. So it's pretty common when people are doing intellectual work, schoolwork, working at your desk at your job, to listen to music while you're working. So what kind of music is the best kind of music to listen to while you're working or studying? None. Listening to music kills your productivity. There are thousands of studies that have proven this. And while listening to music may make work more enjoyable, it will always make you less productive. Always. What does work is to take breaks during your workday and listen to music for 15 minutes or so and totally immerse yourself in that experience. Then you'll come back to work feeling refreshed and more productive. And the type of music doesn't matter when you listen to it during that break. It's, it's whatever you enjoy. And that is something you should know. It seems we are all gullible to some extent, or, or maybe a better word is suggestible. It helps explain why people respond so well to placebos, or why some people can be hypnotized, or, or some people can have false memories that they are certain are true. It does seem that if the brain actually believes something, not everything, but some things, it can actually make those things happen. To the untrained observer, it almost seems like magic. It's really fascinating. So what is really going on here? Eric Vance is a science writer who has explored this whole idea of human suggestibility. He has written for National Geographic, and he is author of the National Geographic book, Suggestible You, The Curious Science of Your Brain's Ability to Deceive, Transform, and Heal. Hi, Eric. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So this idea of suggestibility implies to me that if, if you can convince me, my brain, that something is true, then my brain kind of makes it a reality, right? So when the hypnotist in his show gets people to believe that they should cluck like a chicken or a sugar pill actually relieves someone's headache, it's because the brain somehow makes it so. And the question is, how? How does the brain make it so? Well, you, you know, it's a great question. Really, the brain at its heart does one job, and that is it's a prediction machine. 
So let's say you take a pill and, and you've, how many, you know, how many pills have you taken for pain in your life? And your brain has a certain expectation that it's going to remove pain and you take that pill, but it's a placebo pill and you don't know it. Um, your brain will actually step in and self medicate itself to make that pain go away rather than change the expectation. Uh, because your brain actually has access to a lot of different drugs on hand, like, like uh, endogenous opioids. These are just like the opioids we inject or we take in pill form, except they're already in our brain. And so your brain can release those when it has the correct expectation and, uh, and make that pain go away. Uh, we also have endogenous cannabinoids, which is like what you find in marijuana. We have, um, serotonin and dopamine and all these other different uh, drugs. It's, it's often referred to as an internal pharmacy that your brain has access to and just needs to be coaxed into using. And so when you take a placebo pill, for example, you're sort of tricking your brain into releasing its own drugs. Clearly, though, there are limits because the placebo effect might work on a headache or back pain or something like that, but you can't think a pill will cure your cancer and your brain somehow cures your cancer. That is a great point. Yes. And this is actually what I think is the most interesting is there are some things that the brain has a lot of power over. For instance, pain, chronic pain, uh, depression, anxiety, stomach issues like uh, irritable bowel syndrome. Parkinson's is a great example of something where your brain has a tool, dopamine, to change how your body experiences Parkinson's. Um, but you're right. A tumor does not respond well to any of your internal pharmacies. And placebos don't last that long. Historically, placebos have been thought to be very short term. Um, and I think we all know that. Uh, one of the big questions is, can they be used to make lasting changes in, say, chronic pain? Which I think I've heard is an area where some advances have been made. And, and it's just so interesting to me. If something hurts, it hurts. And so how, how do you suggest that it doesn't hurt and somehow people believe it and the brain makes it so. Uh, you know, a lot of people who work on chronic pain have been trying for years to find more effective solutions to what, what is a pain epidemic in our country. And um, if I give you a placebo pill and I say, look, this will make your pain go away, it, it'll work for maybe a couple hours. But the question that a lot of people have is, is there a way that I can take that temporary placebo treatment and make it permanent. Let me give you an example of this. There's a scientist who works with soldiers coming back from the war, a lot of people who've lost limbs. And one of the first things he does, this is when you lose a limb, you have a, a lot of chronic pain afterwards, generally. And what the first thing he does is sits down with these, with these soldiers and he says, okay, tell me about your childhood. Tell me about the sensory experiences of your childhood. And say it's uh, the taste of caramels that comes to your mind when you went to your grandmother's house or the smell of eucalyptus trees outside your bedroom window or the sound of jazz as your mom played jazz in the morning. Um, and every time you take your medicine, your, your opioids, you, um, you also take that sensory experience. So you, you taste a caramel or you listen to jazz. Okay, and you do this every day for a month or however long you need to. And then over time, you take away the drug, but you keep having the sensory experience. So you keep smelling eucalyptus every day. And what you're doing is he's, he's able to sort of train the brain to self-medicate. It's, it's a placebo effect, but it's sort of a trained placebo effect. And he's had tremendous success with um, getting people off of these really addictive drugs. And this is really new stuff. This is stuff that we're still coming to understand right now. So what do we know about if 
let's say you give me a, a, a placebo pill for my headache and my headache goes away. And then you tell me, by the way, this was just a placebo pill. And then you give it to me the next time I have a headache. Is it now not going to work? Well, that's a great question. Um, it, it depends on the person. Uh, it might, that might work this week and not next week. Uh, it, placebos are, are really hard to pin down. This is one of the reasons why we've had so much trouble understanding them. Uh, if you think about it, placebos are actually the cornerstone of modern medicine. Uh, basically any drug that you take has to outperform a placebo. Um, and it can be very difficult when you, when you do a trial and you get a bunch of placebo responders and then you remove them from the trial, new ones pop up the next week or the next month. It's very hard to figure out when and how people have placebo responses. Um, so there are some studies where you can actually take people and tell them, this is a placebo. There is nothing in this. And you have them repeat to you, what is this? It's a placebo. Okay, you understand. And they take it and it still works. Not for as many people, but it still works for a, a pretty big chunk of society. So that's just uh, something that our brain, that you, that's an unconscious placebo, something you can't really stop from happening. Your brain just has uh, a placebo response. Well, it would seem that in this discussion, you have to bring in alternative medicine, because one of the criticisms of alternative medicine is that is that it doesn't work. And, and yet there are people who swear it does work, and perhaps in many cases, the reason people swear it does work is because they believe it works, and so it works. And so if you sell somebody something that doesn't work, but they believe it works, and because they believe it works, it works, is it wrong to sell them something that doesn't work? That's a great question. I think that's the, the $2 million question, or maybe $10 billion question. It, it, it's a, a very large, the alternative um, medicine industry is a very large one. Uh, it does work, and it is placebo. These things can both be true uh, in a lot of cases. And I don't mean all alternative medicine. There's a lot. Um, there's a lot of alternative medicine that really hasn't been investigated fully yet. But a lot of the medicines that you see that um, sort of the old standbys, uh, they haven't outperformed the placebo response. And if they haven't outperformed a placebo, then they are kind of by definition placebos. But they still work. I mean, you see these placebo rates, especially with something like pain of you know, 50%, 40, 50, even 60% of the, the people in the trial get better on the placebo. It's very hard for a drug to outperform something that is making 50 or 60% of the people feel better. You, know, you have to have a powerful drug to do that. So it does work, but the, it's just the placebo effect is a lot higher, I think, than a lot of people realize. That's why you don't see a lot of new pain drugs on the market. Uh, depression is another one. You don't see a lot of new drugs. Parkinson's is very, very hard to treat. It's very hard to come up with new treatments for it because of the high placebo response. If you're fighting against a disease where 60% of your patients are getting better through trickery, how do you know if what you're testing is working? Uh, so it, a lot of these alternative medicines do rely on placebo effects and they do make people feel better. And it's a big question whether or not we have a problem with that because there's some deception in there and, and, uh, you know, we're, we're telling ourselves stories, but if they make you feel better and they're not too expensive and they're not hurting the world, well, I don't, I don't know where the harm is, especially if they're bringing relief, which they clearly are. Well, that brings up a question. Are we so susceptible if we drill down a little deeper here? 
are we so susceptible that if I tell you I've got these placebo pills here then and you don't know they're placebos, and I tell you this pill's going to make you feel better and this one's a dollar, but this $10 pill is going to make you feel even better. Does the $10 pill work even better because you pay $10 for it and you believe it works better? That's a great question. Yes. Uh, that's one of the problems with this is that uh, the, the more a, a placebo costs, the better it tends to work. There's a lot of ways to make placebos more effective. You can change the color. Uh, bigger placebos tend to work, pills tend to work better than smaller ones. Injections, uh, placebo injections tend to work better than placebo pills. And placebo um, uh, surgeries, called sham surgeries, tend to work better than injections. So yeah, there. If an expensive placebo tends to be more effective than a cheaper one, and yet, you know, asking someone to pay two thousand dollars for a placebo, which certainly this is out there, uh, it's a. You know, I have talked to a number of people who spent their fortunes or their or their you know their their savings or their retirement money chasing after these placebos that that in the end never really uh, never gave them what they were searching for, and so the, it's a it's a. It's a tough moral question, right? What about the idea that suggestibility is stronger in the presence of others, meaning, again, using a placebo? If you're in a room full of people and we're all taking this placebo pill and everyone's raving about how good it is, are you then more likely to rave about how good it is too and really feel a lot better because all these other people claimed it felt a lot better? This is actually kind of new, and and I think we all kind of know this when you know when you talk to your aunt and she says, oh, you know, you've got to try this new thing that I, you know, you if you rub salt on your nose, it'll make this thing go away, or or, or have a have a clove of raw garlic, and I've I've done it for years, and everyone around the room agrees. Um, what we found is that uh, peer pressure is a very powerful part of placebo, and you can actually test it in a laboratory where you actually uh, I, I did this a lot a few times where you sort of the scientists will trick you into thinking that a certain amount of pain comes from a certain color or a certain thing that you see. You're hooked up to a machine and it gives you pain and then you see a color. And then they start changing the colors and they, they, they trick you into thinking having less pain than you than you expect. Well, if you do the same experiment, but then you say, oh, by the way, um, 50 other people did the same thing and they said it wasn't very painful. You know, be honest, tell us how much it hurts, but just know that 50 other people said it didn't hurt very much. Well, that has an effect on you. And suddenly you start not only rating the pain lower, but uh, through other measurements, you can see that you're actually feeling less pain. So by assuming that these other people have had less pain, you have significantly less pain, just, just through the peer pressure, people who don't even exist. They're not even real people. And you can actually simulate this again by giving people uh, shots of vasopressin or oxytocin, which are um, they're hormones that are released when we get in contact with other people or we're around family. If you give someone uh, those kinds of injections while they're having a placebo response, the placebo response goes through the roof. So uh, there's something inherently powerful about other people. It's so interesting that I, uh, we're just more suggestible than I think anybody really realizes. I'm speaking with Eric Vance. He is a science writer. His book is Suggestible You, The Curious Science of Your Brain's Ability to Deceive, Transform, and Heal. So, Eric, I'm wondering how much more or less suggestible are you depending on who's telling you? In other words, 
is a guy in a lab coat telling you that this medicine is going to work, going to make it work a lot better than if it's just some guy on the street who says, hey, try this. It's something that, that scientists call the, the theater of medicine, which is very important for creating placebo. It's this, it's the story around, around the medicine. It's, it's, we call it, you know, uh, bedside manner. This plays a huge role. And actually there's some scientists at Stanford who are playing with changing the demeanor of a doctor or changing what's on the walls and seeing how it affects people's placebo responses. Um, specifically it, you can create rashes and then create sort of placebo, uh, um, uh, treatments for rashes and, uh, and, and they're seeing some strong effects by simply changing the theater in which people are experiencing medicine. I mean, a lot of people feel better as soon as they walk into a hospital, even before they get anything from the doctor. When the doctor starts, you know, feeling their heartbeat and, and uh, talking to them, a lot of symptoms disappear. And, and we have, for many years, considered this to be sort of self-delusion. But in fact, I think what science is showing us is that these are real effects, that people are feeling better, and that the body has a lot of power to, to make people feel better as soon as it gets that that expectation, that, that trigger, that, okay, now it's time to feel better. It has a lot of tools at its disposal. Well, but what does it mean to feel better? Is it just that general sense of well-being that now I'm, the doctor's here, so everything's fine? Like when you hear the ambulance coming after you've been in a car wreck and now you know help is on the way? Or is it really objectively symptoms begin to go away? It's well, the easiest thing to test in all of this is pain with a lot of these studies where you're looking at is pain. I mean, obviously things like nausea and depression and um, irritable bowel syndrome, a lot of these other conditions would be probably in that group, but we don't, it's harder to have, you know, you can't give someone depression uh, in a laboratory. Uh, right. You can't, yeah, it's very, it's hard to study this, but you can give them pain. And so uh, from what we're understanding about pain, yes, these, these symptoms are going away. And, and, and it's, um, you know, it's been proposed that maybe chronic pain itself is simply just your brain not dialing up its self-medication enough. Um, that that's all that chronic pain really is. That it, it's not actually the injury, it's actually the brain not twiddling the dials quite right to make the pain disappear. So you've talked about the suggestibility for people with pain or perhaps with depression or a few other things. What, what does that list look like beyond those two and where, where does it stop? Where is it like, I'm sorry, placebos don't help this. That's, that's a great question. I think this is really one of the most important issues that that when you are talking about your body's ability to heal that it's not limitless i mean one scientist told me it's not that the brain has an unlimited ability to heal your body it's just that we don't know where those limits are um so yes you, you named a bunch of me have you know i mentioned pain uh, depression anxiety irritable bowels parkinson's a very classic one uh, and then also you have certain types of addiction which are also related to opioids and and uh, and and it's been a little harder to study. A lot of autoimmune diseases fall into this. Uh, asthma falls into this category. A lot of chronic diseases um, tend to fall into the into these categories. Uh, something like Alzheimer's disease does not, while depression or anxiety does. Uh, obsessive compulsive disorder does not. We started by talking about hypnosis. I want to go back to that just briefly. When you have this view in your head of somebody being hypnotized, it's this guy and he's holding a, a watch and you, you know, going back and forth and you're getting very sleepy and, 
And do people actually get sleepy? Is the watch doing anything? Is this just showmanship? Is this all, what is that? The hypnotists haven't used watches for a long time. They did used to use watches. And, and there's a lot of uh, conversation in the very small sort of community of hypnotists or hypnosis scientists as to what exactly is going on with the watches in the, in the brain. But I think today, almost everyone, uh, they have you close your eyes and they have you imagine something. Uh, usually uh, it's a guided sort of guided visual visualization where, you know, I say, OK, imagine you're standing at the foot of a bunch of stairs and you go up one step and, and you are getting, you're not getting sleepy. You're getting more relaxed. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to shut down some of the parts of your brain that are moving really, really quickly. These sort of alpha waves where your, your brain is sort of firing really, really, really fast and, and encourage the parts of your brain that move slower. It looks in the brain like meditation and hypnosis are not the same thing, but they're they're both very sort of slow states. And you get into this specific slow state that we don't fully understand. But uh, if you get and what's interesting about hypnosis is not everyone can reach it in the same way. And it, it, so if I am actually low on the hypnotizability scale, so I can't get really, really powerfully hypnotized. Um, you can't, for instance, take, take away my memory. Some people, you can make them forget things if they're very hypnotizable. I, I can't get that hypnotized. But um, I can feel some of the lighter effects. And, uh, and if you can get to this stage where your brain is sort of moving slowly, you're, you're uh, more available for suggestions, for changing your expectations, your, the deep expectations in your mind. Uh, this is at least the theory. Again, it's really hard to study, but uh, you have access to, so if someone has, let's say, a fear of the dentist chair, this is where this has been used a, a fair bit, you can change that. You get someone into that state and you can change their expectation when they see a dentist chair. You can have them visualize dentist chair. Now, I should say throughout this whole process, you're not asleep. And you're working with the hypnotist. One of my favorite examples, quickly, uh, was a, a guy who got, he had full body burns, sort of 40% of his body was burned, really, really terrible pain, and he did, wasn't responding well to painkillers. And so a hypnotist came in and said, you know, do you mind if I try and hypnotize you? And he said, oh, you can't hypnotize me, I'm, I'm not hypnotizing. I said, okay, well, let, let me try. And he tries, and sure enough, this guy is very hypnotizable, he slips right under. And they got him to the point where they actually could take off all of his bandages and scrub out all of his wounds, which would be incredibly painful, no painkillers. And he was awake, he was looking around, he, he was completely conscious, but he didn't feel any pain because the, the hypnotist had sort of had given him this expectation that there wouldn't be any pain. Now, I don't know what that was, but whatever it is, we should be studying that a lot because it's absolutely phenomenal. And the next day he went to someone else and it didn't work at all. And that's the frustrating thing with hypnosis is it doesn't, it's not steady, it's not constant from person to person. Which is one of the reasons this is so interesting and, and like magic, because, you know, it is hard to explain and it, it, it isn't clear how it works. And yet it does work in so many cases. But then again, it doesn't work in other cases. Eric Vance has been my guest. He is a science writer and the name of his book is Suggestible You, The Curious Science of Your Brain's Ability to Deceive, Transform and Heal. And you'll find a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Mike. This has been a real pleasure. When you're sick, sick enough to go to the doctor, there's an expectation that the doctor will do something to make you better, or at least make you feel better. If you went to the doctor and told him you were sick, and he said, 
Well, beats me. I, nothing I can do except tell you to go home and rest. You would be unimpressed. And doctors know that. They know that to keep you as a patient, they typically need to do something when you say you're sick. And this is just part of a bigger problem that has led to patients being overtreated and overmedicated. Dr. Krister Miorset is a neurosurgeon in Norway who's currently doing research at Harvard, and he's looked into this problem and has come up with four questions you need to ask your doctor. He gave a very interesting TED Talk on this, which you can see online. Hi, doctor. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Hi, and thanks for having me. Of course. So explain the problem in a little more detail than I just did that you're addressing here with these four questions that you've come up with that everyone should ask their doctor. Well, for many years in healthcare, we've been believing that more care is the same as better care. But uh, we've been more and more aware of that more care can actually mean that you can be harmed. Uh, You can have side effects. You can risking complications. Uh, By being a more engaged and active consumer, you can actually prevent a lot of unnecessary treatment. Well, we do live in a culture where more is better. At least that's the way it often seems. So it makes sense that it would apply to healthcare as well. But, you know, I'm one of those people that I would rather never see the doctor. I would rather not go to the doctor. But when I do have to go, if I am really sick, I understand that idea of, well, I want the doctor to do something. Yeah, and I think that goes for uh, the patients. Uh, when they see a doctor, they ex- expect something. If you come to the doctor and you're having a cold, you expect a treatment. And the treat- uh, and the doctor is also, he's trained to treat patient, not to say no to the patient. You don't need any treatment. And so you have this symbiosis that is creating over-treatment. And what we find is that 30% of uh, cases, unnecessary treatment or tests are prescribed. 30% of what cases? Of any, actually, consultation. There's been several studies performed on this. Let me just take uh, an example from my reality. I'm a neurosurgeon, so I see a lot of patients with a mild head trauma. Now, the evidence-based care of such a patient would be to observe the patient in 24 hours or maybe even less to see if he recovers. Uh, And then if he doesn't recover, you might take a CT uh, to rule out a hemorrhage. What we see is that in 30% of cases, doctors take a CT scan right away instead of observing. And the reasons might be that the doctor, you know, are in a hurry. Maybe the patient's mother wants the CT to be performed. Uh, But what you're doing when you're taking the CT scan, are you actually exposing the patient to radiation that might be associated with uh, cancer? And so it's an unnecessary procedure that can actually be harmful. And if the doctor is in a hurry, or if the patient's mother really wants that CT scan for her peace of mind, are those not legitimate reasons to do it? In most cases in, uh, in medicine, uh, we have guidelines, and the guideline says that we should observe. It costs less, and it's the evidence-based guideline that, you know, it's the best treatment. Isn't that interesting, uh, though, that the, the whole idea of telling a patient, of telling somebody who has head trauma, we're just going to keep our eye on you for a while. It just sounds like you're not doing your job. Yeah, and it's really, really difficult. And especially if maybe I was mentioning the mother of like a young kid is questioning you. Are you sure? Uh, 
Well, then you should point out as a physician that the guidelines show that this is the best uh, care or treatment. And that's what I want with my questions. I want the patient to engage and instead of demanding that a CT is being performed, ask, is a CT scan really necessary? What are the risks? Are there other options? And so let's, let's run through the four questions. What are the four questions? The main question is, and I think if you come out of this interview with, with anything, I think you should tell your doctor whenever you see him and he suggests a test uh, or a procedure, doctor, is this really necessary? Sometimes he might say yes, and sometimes he might say no. But even so, you should ask, what are the risks involved? Doing this, taking this test or uh, doing this procedure. And you should also ask, are there other options? And you could go as far to say, what happens if I don't do anything? And may I suggest a fifth question in a fee-for-service environment that the U.S. is? Uh, you could also ask, uh, what are the costs? Okay, so the, f- the four questions are, is this really necessary? What are the risks? Are there other options? And what if I do nothing? And the, and the fifth question being, and how much does it cost? Do you think this is a new, relatively new phenomenon that, that, that 10, 20, 30 years ago, we wouldn't have had to have asked these questions? People were, were more willing to accept the doctor saying, you know, there's nothing to do or wait a week or the, the, this idea of I, I have an expectation that you'll do something for me now, doctor. Is, is this a recent thing or, or not? Around like 20 years ago, something happened in research and this, the focus sort of changed. And, and 10 years ago, uh, Donald Berwick, among others, looked at the healthcare costs in the U.S., uh, how much of the healthcare is wasteful. And he turned out with an estimate uh, around $200 billion every year. And at the same time, we see that healthcare costs are rising uh, the GDP amount in the U.S. is about to turn, it's about to be around 20% of the GDP, uh, way above other countries, uh, and it's not sustainable. So we have to do something about it. So the focus of this is actually uh, affecting the whole medical community at this moment. I would say uh, I'm in the U.S. to uh, research health policy, and uh, we need to do something. And these four questions is part of a bigger package to shift the focus to to be more evidence-based in medicine. Well, it would also seem that doctors play a, a role in this problem because if they're recommending procedures and pills and things that aren't really necessary, well, that's on them. I mean, th- th- it's up to them. They're the doctor. But also, it seems that there's a problem with, and, you know, there's a saying in, in English, you know, to a hammer, everything's a nail. And, and meaning that, you know, if you have back pain and you go to a back surgeon, well, guess what he's going to recommend? If you go to a physical therapist, well, guess what he's going to recommend? So there isn't this uh, objective view of these conditions. In medicine, we have all these academic silos. We don't have that much integrated care. So I think the solution to such a problem is to make physicians more accountable for the whole episode or the, the patient's cycle. And actually, that's what I'm looking at here uh, at Harvard at this moment. I'm uh, researching different 
financial models that could affect waste, could affect the treatment decisions, like you are saying. Uh, because I know as a physician, you know, being a spine surgeon and all, uh, it's really hard to say no to a patient. Also, it's not that, uh, you know, I see a nail when the patient comes in as a hammer myself, but it's uh, uh, if a patient comes in and wants an operation, it's really hard to say no. And this is what you've been trained to do. This is... Uh, um, it lies in you, like you say, uh, you're a hammer, right? So being like making people more accountable for whole patient cycles, I think that's one of the solutions to to beat this problem. Well, it's quite a dilemma because it's it would be one thing if prescribing these treatments or medications or whatever w was benign, it made the patient feel better, but it didn't cause any harm. But what you're saying is that this over treatment, this over medicating, this over operating on people you know it, it it has the potential to cause real harm and and yet people want something done they go to the doctor they want something done and i think that's human you know it's uh, cause and effect and everything we like to tell the story where things happen uh, and you get better but it turns out that more care is not always better care. And we're getting increasingly aware of that. And uh, more care can actually be harmful. Um, and that's why we're, you need to, again and again, you know, bring those four questions or even the fifth question with, uh, with the costs to the doctor and keep on asking them, you know, don't be shy. I guess maybe I, I'm just not in the majority, but I, I would be looking to avoid more medication, going to the hospital. Because, you know, it's not just the risk of the procedure. There's a risk just walking into a hospital. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of sick people there. There's a lot of infection. There's a, a, People get sick from going to the hospital. So, you know, if my doctor says, well, you need an operation, I, I'd be looking at, at talking to other people about finding ways not to have an operation, not to walk into a hospital if I didn't have to. Yes, but then again, I, I would say like you're maybe not the typical patient, but most patients that I have have not considered the risks of getting through an operation. I've been trained by, by some physicians in Oslo, and one of them always said to me, like, remember, every time you operate a patient, tell the patient about the risks every risk because you that's one of your duties as a physician to make the, the patient aware of what he's going to go through right and nobody when i do that to patients like they've never heard about the complication rates like some of them actually and i have experienced that patients have said uh, actually i want to think about this and i think i'm happy when that happens because then i basically made people aware of what they are going through. But a lot of people just listen me out and then they say, when are we going to start? Me as a patient, I'm much more concerned about uh, side effects and complication rates. And that's and the reason is that I'm actually experienced and I've seen everything that has gone wrong. And so I'm more aware of it. And afraid of it. And afraid of it, yeah. Well, as I listen to you, you know, it is funny that there is this expectation that medicine can do something for everything that ails you. And and I know from personal experience, as well as other people I know, that sometimes you go to the doctor, and I, mean, I went to the doctor once for a, a pain, a, a kind of a chronic recurring pain thing, and the doctor said, well, look, we could, we could run you through a whole battery of tests, 
And most likely what's going to happen is there's nothing we can do, that, that, that there's no treatment for that, that you're, that you're just going to have to live with it. And we can do the tests, but that's probably what's going to happen. And, and, but people don't have that expectation. They expect if it hurts, you will fix it. And sometimes you can't fix it. Definitely not. And uh, that's tough for people to hear. Basically, when you get such an information, you have to go through the five stages of grief. You know, really, I'm not going to be like I was before. Uh, do I really have to, you know, f- uh, have this pain the rest of my life? Uh, and then sort of you come out to the other end and like you, you say you're okay with it. That's life. But uh, a lot of people struggle in that phase. And that's where healthcare need to also help the patient, you know, just don't send them on, on the door and say, bye-bye, okay, you'll be okay. Well, it's really interesting, and I think it's, it's uh, smart of you to, to get out in front and say, look, you know, you, you as the patient have, have to, to pay attention here and ask some questions and, and not just do whatever you're told because, like you say, there's consequences, there's risks, there's, there's op- other options that, aren't, that make this unnecessary. So you got to really... There's so much to, there's so many moving parts. It's, it, it, it's, it's up to the patient to keep their eye on it. It is. And, then the, and it's the responsibility for the physicians also to, to be aware of this and be focused on this. So we have to work on different levels, like I say, to bring the best possible care, avoid the unnecessary treatments and tests. Well, what I like about this discussion is most people never think about it. They think that if they go to the doctor, they should get some sort of treatment and th- that there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's the right thing to do. But in some cases, and clearly in many cases, it's contributing to a bigger problem of all of us being over-medicated. Dr. Krister Miorset has been my guest. He is a neurosurgeon in Norway who is currently at Harvard doing research, and he has a TED Talk about what we've just been talking about, and there's a link to that TED Talk in the show notes. Thanks for being here, doctor. Thank you for having me. You know those look-alike store brand products? They're usually drug or personal care items, and they usually say on it, compare to, and then they list the name of a product that's usually sitting right next to it on the shelf. Of course, few of us have the scientific ability to analyze those products. However, Ron Robinson, founder of Beautystat.com, says cosmetic chemists do, and he says in most cases those products are a nearly perfect replica of the name brand. There are no rules against making an exact copy of a product as long as the technology isn't patented. And it's easy to do for a cosmetic chemist. He has the ability to break down an original formula, find the ingredients, and reformulate them. And presto, you've got pretty much the same product for a much cheaper price. While it may not be true 100% of the time, it's probably worth trying the cheaper look-alike because if you don't like it, the store will usually take it back and refund your money. And that is something you should know. Please take a moment to share this podcast with someone you know. If you do, you'll make my day. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.